Baruchim Habayim to everyone. Erev Tov, welcome to the Bet Midrash for Parsha Be'chukotai. So we are in the last Parsha of Sefer Vayikra, which is the book of Leviticus. And uh, we are so, so close to Shavuot. So uh, two-day extravaganza and uh, amazing. Hope everyone's having a great Omer count. And also, uh, you are getting ready for a wonderful minor Yom Tov coming up this Yom Rishon. And yes, that is Yom Jerusalem, Jerusalem Day. So I don't know about you, but I've been just blown away and just captivated by all things Jerusalem. So um, if you are connected with Rabbi Trugman Shlita, he was a part of a Yom Yerushalayim event that just took place this past Yom Rishon, and it was a week in advance. So it's just kind of giving everyone a week to kind of absorb all these teachings. It was like two or three hours long, and uh, I just finished it with the help of Hashem today, and it was just a wonderful uh, session uh, full of so many different speakers. The other thing that's going on right now, too, is the Geula Summit by Shifra Hannah Hendry. May she live and be well. I know that um, there are so many different teachers to glean from, and I just want to encourage everyone, if you're looking for breakthrough, if you're looking for Geula vision, as it is called, uh, she is doing a very great job of offering a lot of sessions that really just kind of take things to the next level. So among uh, so many different things, I'm just learning a lot about more of our brothers and sisters that are out there that have a platform. And it's just really cool to see everyone when they use their talents and their gifts, especially for Hashem. And uh, I'll mention one note before we get into our bracha for tonight for a Torah study that Rabbi Shlomo Katz, yes, he is a rabbi, which is so crazy because I know him as a musician. So I listen to his music all the time. And on the Yom Yerushalayim event that just happened this past week, he gave a, a drasha. So in the middle of him singing and everything, he just puts the guitar down and just starts going. And it was a, a big uh, dedication to Rabbi Shlomo Karlabach, Alaba Shalom. And uh, he taught so, so much. But the thing that Shlomo Katz really just stunned me with is that, you know, the songs that you hear on his album, like he sang it live. So I'm like, whoa, like it sounds just like the CD. So it was just like really cool just to see that. But anyway, I just want to mention all these things to encourage you that, you know, our times that we're in are very, very turbulent, but just as turbulent as the times so is the neshama that is within us, and we must fight for that. We must keep the end game in mind, the focal point on everything being sweetened and us being all returned to the new Yerushalayim with Mashiach and the temple, the end gathering, great family reunion. We have a lot to look forward to. And in the meantime, we're supposed to yearn. We're supposed to wait. We're supposed to do all we can to hasten that day and part of that is making sure that we fight through our challenges. Somewhere between our struggles and our ambitions is where the light of Mashiach will burst forth. So I just want to leave us with that. And now with all that being said, Mashiach now 100%. Let's start with the Baraka before studying Torah. 
and we shall get underway with tonight's lesson. All right, get my page pulled up over here. If you have your Sidur, we'll be on page 16. Page 17 has the English. Let's give ourselves a little bit more here. Get our Ivrit going. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher kitshanu b'mitzvotah b'tzibanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Veharevna Adonai Eloheinu et divrei Torateka. Befinu ufiamka beit Yisrael v'niye anaknu v'etze etze enu v'etze etze eamka beit Yisrael kulano yodea shemeka velonde torateka lishma. Baruch atah Adonai hamlamet Torah leamo Yisrael. Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachar Banu Miko Ha'amim, Ve Natan Lanu Et Torato. Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten HaTorah, Mashiach Now. So the first thing I want to start with is actually a, an insight from uh, Pirkei Avot. And uh, this is a section where it talks about the Holy One, blessed is He. Wished to make the people of Israel meritorious, therefore he gave them the Torah and mitzvot in great abundance. So I will share my screen so that you can see what I'm looking at. Here it is. Boom. And we'll hide that for a second. So hopefully everyone can see here. I need to be able to see too. <laughs> okay, there we go. So Sefer HaHinuk, Mitzvah 16, explains, know that a person's essence is, is affected by his actions, and all of his thoughts are directed by the deeds in which he is involved. Did you know many of our thoughts come from what we are actually doing? So if you have trouble with your thinking, you're wondering where these foreign thoughts come from, part of the equation, not all of it, but part of it is what are you doing? And it says, whether good or evil, even a person who is truly evil at heart and constantly thinks of doing evil, if his spirit can transcend these thoughts, and he strives and occupies himself consistently with Torah study and mitzvot, even for ulterior motives, will be swayed to act perpetually good and will be brought by these actions performed with ulterior motives to act from altruistic pure motivations. That was a mouthful. Basically, if you're having bad thoughts, if you feel like you're a bad person, if you feel like low or whatever is going on in your life that may be pushing you towards darkness or surrounding you with it, the Charlie Brown cloud, okay, you can make a sunny day by doing this, striving and occupying yourself consistently with Torah and mitzvot, even if it's not for the right reasons. Like in our bracha, we say lishma for the sake of for like for the Torah's own sake or for the sake of heaven, like Shema, Shemayim, like Lishma. It's also connected to Moshe, 
Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, like the one who is drawn from the water. So we say to Moshe or for Moshe or from Moshe is what we actually say when we say Lishma. So Hamlamed Torah Lishma. So we're learning, studying Torah, teaching Torah for its own sake, for the sake of Moshe Rabbeinu, for the sake of heaven. All of these things are actually connected. One of the things we should know about Moshe Rabbeinu, the Mem, the Shin, and the Hey, reverse to Hey Shin Mem, which is Hashem. So now, learning Torah for the sake of Hashem. So when you reverse the name of Moshe, it becomes Hashem. Also, Moshe itself is an acronym for Memtet Sar Hapanim which is the teacher of the way who is the prince of the face or the prince of the presence. That which is the innermost sanctum of Hashem's Shekinah. So all of that. And to take it up one more notch, Moshe is the Gematria 345, which is the same Gematria as Shiloh, which is connected to Shlomo. And this is all about the one to whom peace belongs, the one to whom the kingdom belongs, and the one who dominion is given to. So it says that the scepter will not depart from Yehuda until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh happens to represent the Shin and the name Mashiach. So one of the names of Mashiach is Shiloh. So all of this is going on right now, what we're talking about. Even if you don't feel like you're looking at focused on Hashem, if you just grab yourself a mitzvah, grab yourself a piece of chumash, grab yourself a tefillah, which is one of the brachot, the prayers, or grab a tehillim, one of the, the psalms. Once you start doing these things, it will change your thoughts, it will impact your very essence, and it will transform you. Now, the thing about this, you have to know, it's not going to be like a light switch. Light in the Torah is not a, a flip of the switch. It is oil. It is wicks. It is vessels. You have to make the vessel, put the oil in it, light the wick. It's got to burn. Okay, so it takes a little bit of work, takes a little bit of time. But as you know, over time, how things happen. So even if you just took five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes there, it, this is the effect that we're talking about. I was in the break room today and one of my coworkers was having a conversation and he said, man, you know what the thing is about these vending machines is that we're paying like all this money. It's like a dollar here, a dollar there, a dollar there. I can go to the store and get the same item for like two, three bucks and I can get a whole case of them. But here we are spending these little increments of money. Well, if you take a look at your bank account from those little bitty increments, you're spending like three, four times the amount of what you could go to the store and buy. This was a big, big lesson for me, not for the sake of account and budgeting, but think about that with your Torah study. You're just like, well, I don't sit down for two hours every day to study Torah. Well, guess what? How many little chunks of time have you taken to read an Instagram post, to read a tweet from Rabbi Trugman, if not anyone else, Rabbi Truckman is tweeting. I'm like, what is going on? This is crazy. But anyway, you know, all these little moments, someone texts you a little insight. If you're on the signal thread, which by the way, shouts out to our Mishpaka, you guys are doing such a wonderful job engaging and talking. It's beautiful. 
And we have a chat thread that is open and available for Torah drops. Just a little, put a little something in there. You know, Devorah did a really good Zohar drop, you know, so that was cool. So make sure you live and be well. That was an awesome uh, insight. So just little things like that. And I mean, you're you're finding this on your Facebook, Bezrat Hashem, you know, Facebook can be a crazy place. But anyway, all these little chunks of time, they will affect your very essence. Look at this. Your essence is affected by your actions. So going on, it says, and your thoughts change. You want to change your mind, transformed by the renewal of your mind? Romans 12, what? Comes through your actions, as well as what you're actually reading. So I know reading is an action, but I'm just saying. So then it goes on to say that by the power of his actions, he will kill his evil inclination. For the heart is drawn after one's own actions. After one's actions. Yes, your heart is drawn after one's actions. So when we talk about killing our Yetzirah in Hebrew, that is the, the euphemism for offering our very flesh, the, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, offering those things up on the altar to Hashem. This is why when we offered offerings in the temple, it should be noted that that offering was our proxy. It represented whatever sin we did. It represented whatever thought we had, whatever notion we wanted, because all offerings weren't sin offerings. We had offerings where we just want to say, Hashem, thank you so, so much. You delivered me from this, this, or this. You know, I just want to say you're awesome, God. So here we go. And that's like the, the peace offering where, you know, you want to have a big meal with the, the, the Kohanim and the Leviim and other Israelites. Everyone gets to partake in that meal. So you create a holy meal for your whole community once you do something like that. And this is all predicated off of something of yourself. So this whole aspect of killing doesn't necessarily mean like go murder it and like do these grotesque things. It's like convert that energy into holiness, into connectivity with Hashem, into energy of light beaming down from heaven into this physical world. We can create those things by our actions. And part of our thinking and part of our speaking are also actions. Our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds are all verbs. So this is something Judaism comes to teach us. And I wanted to share that from Pirkei Avot. So next up, I want to uh, share this. This is a brand new book that Shlomo Ben Arroyo, or Ben Arroyo, his last name is Arroyo. Shlomo Ben Haleo. May he live and be well, shared with me. This is Secrets of the Geula. Again, another book. Uh, if you could describe yourself in one word, what would it be? I want you to all take note of this because one of the big things you have to know about how to make it through these crazy times and get to the Mashiach, because, I mean, it's challenging. The fact that, to just stay focused, you know, my gosh, once Shabbat ends, you're like, why well, I got to do Havdalah? Why well, I got to go through another week? Oh, my gosh. Why can't I just go back into Shabbat? It's safe here. Anyway, you need that one thing that really propels you and pushes you through. For me, that word is get'ula. So 
One of the things that I love about the redemption is the fact that it is known as the repair for humanity, humankind, mankind, and also for the world, for all of creation. We've talked previously about how the level of Adam before the sin is what the Mashiach will restore us to. The fact that creation itself will be so robust and fruitful. We talked about this last week, and we talked about this during the drosh that, you know, you won't need to go to a grocery store in the Geula because the land itself is just going to make ready-made food for you. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy things to think about when it comes to this. So I have just a crazy yearning for this, and this is what speaks to me. So learn what speaks to you is one of the many tools to keep in your kit for uh, pushing through or in your daily walk. So this is from page 63. And it says that the Ramban from Kitve Haramban, Shir Hashirim 8, volume 2, page 516, comments that a long time will pass after the end gathering of the exile before all of Yisrael does Teshuvah. Now, why is this important? What happens in Romans chapter 11? That there's a passage that talks about people being grafted in. There is a great rejection so that there can be a, an acceptance and things like that. And guess where else this is found? It's also found in this little known book. I don't know how little known it is. I call it little known because I just found out about it. Maybe you already knew. The future. There's a chapter in here that talks about why in the world was Israel exiled. And where is it? Uh, here it is. This is uh, chapter, chapter five. It says this. So just so you can see the page here, uh, page 39 in the future. What does that title say? One of the reasons for exile is attracting converts. And you should know, whoa, what just happened? I don't know, uh, my screen. Okay, anyway, you should know that when Israel is sent into exile, it's due to our misdeeds. So one of the effects of our misdeeds is that there is an opportunity for the nations to be brought in. And it says in Romans 11 that there's a partial hardening of the heart or a blindness of some sort that is placed on Israel in the meantime until the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. And here it is that the Ramban is saying that a long time will pass after the end gathering of exile before Israel does the Shuvah. In other words, Israel will repent, they will accept that which they currently reject and that which is actually bringing transformation to mankind. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to share that because that's a part of the Geula is that there's an end gathering going on. And specifically since 1948, with Israel becoming a state again, and at least up until this point, about 45 to 50% of Jews have returned home that is a part of the end gathering process. So once we hit the 50% mark, 
there's going to be a big shift in the next phase of the Geula. So the Geula is an entire process. And if we look back just to 1948, this is another reason why Jerusalem Day is so important and why Yom Ha'atzma'ut was, is so important to know. These things are milestones of saying, hey, look, Hashem is getting ready for the final exile to be complete, for us to finally return home, for the resurrection to be brought forth, the temple, Mashiach, all of Israel being brought back together. It's like it's happening. So we're in the midst of it. So hopefully that's encouraging. And hopefully everyone uh, was able to understand that. If I need to go over anything, I can definitely make clarification. We have a hand on the floor. Take it away. Um, shalom to everybody. <laughs> um, one thing about the Golas and Geulah is that it, also there needs to be the rectification of the Arab Rav to bring about the final redemption because we see a lot of that activity. But here's the interesting thing. I've been watching what's been going on in Israel with the Knesset and the government is on the verge of collapse again because people are resigning because of fundamental disagreements with certain members of the Knesset. And there are elements of the Arab Rav within the Knesset. And these people are resigning because of this. Rather than possibly sticking it out and possibly making a rectification. This brings up another issue is, you know, sticking it out for the long haul. You know, we're not, we're running a marathon. That's what uh, Shaul says. Um, and that's something that uh, <clears throat> we need to be careful about. Because um, like Ahmed pointed out, you know, the Golas is a necessity. It brings the nations in, but at the same time, during um, the first exile in Mitzrayim, we had the Arab Rav there. And Moshe actually wanted to bring them out. Hashem didn't, which is an interesting thing. I find that very interesting, you know. Be, um, but the thing about it is we have this undercurrent running in the throughout the Tanakh of this whole thing of redemption, but also of the Arab Rav element that's still there causing problems. And Rebbe Nachman um, uncovered a secret shortly before his death that the recitation of 10 Psalms, and it's in the book, this um, Unlocking the Secret of the Arab Rav, which is another book I strongly recommend anyone get who's on the level of this understanding um, but it talks about this stuff and it's really important you know as much as we hate what they do and dislike or disagree still we have to rectify them we got to get them back into the fold you know through our prayers through our actions you know through our Torah study you know just living it out walking out the commandments letting those people to see it you know this is the real deal you know that's right so I'll just tag to that, that Rabbi Trugman, uh, as a hustle spoke on this, about the fact that in the Talmud, it talks about some of the actions that Moshe Rabbeinu did that Hashem approved and disapproved of. So one of the ones that he disapproved of was bringing out the Arab Rav. Well, the story behind that is, remember when Yosef 
Ben Yaakov was made viceroy in Mitzrayim. He got everyone to get circumcised when there was the famine for them to come and receive bread and all kinds of food to sustain them during that time. Well, that generation had descendants. And with the fact of the circumcision that was under Yosef, this lessened and was a major blow to the Yetzahara of the Egyptians. And so this era of Rav, which, by the way, I put in the chat, this is the mixed multitude that came with Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. Some of them were like, I want to become Jewish. I'm doing this thing. I'm putting blood on my doorpost, too, which one of the things about the blood on the doorpost, not only did it come from the Pesach lamb, but it came from the men getting circumcised in each household. So some people did actually make the conversion happen. Some people were undecided and some people were just like, this is better than Egypt. So here I am. And we can see this all throughout the letters of the Basora and the letters that are in the canonized, what's known as the Brit Hadashah, Matthew through Revelation, that there are these different congregations that are scattered about. Some of those congregations included people who were, they call them God-fearers, but people who were just interested in they showed up to shul and they wanted to hear the Torah being read and they'd go home and go do who knows what. So the same thing with this Arab Rav group that Shlomo was just mentioning, this is a part of the tikkun and rectification process 100%, which creates what I was mentioning earlier, the dynamic of the things that frustrate us, the things that try to surround us with darkness, the things that are just kind of like, why is this happening? All of our challenges, and with the things that we're aiming and striving and, and, and hoping to achieve. Between those two opposing forces, that creates our propulsion that is needed to push us through and to also bring out more light. Just as the analogy of a tree, if you really want that tree to grow strong and have deep roots, it's got to face the wind. If that tree just grows and grows and grows, it can be 80 feet tall. If it never had any force that was opposing it and resisting it, that tree would just fall over in the first storm. So this is our challenge that we have as well. So getting into master plan, I want to make sure I got all of those things out of the way first in case I just got lost in master plan, which is so easy to do. We're in chapter 23. What a chapter this week. Good night. All right, so this starts on page 90, which gematria of 90 is Maim and Melek. Maim is water, Melek is king. So this is also connected to the commentary from Chazal, which is our sages of blessed memory that says, we anoint a king next to a river, and this is a body of living water as symbol sim uh, symbolism for May the reign of this king be uh, like perpetual and flowing, just as these waters are flowing. So that's a part of the anointing and the inaugurating of a king. So if you added one to that, that becomes uh, main in Gematria, Aleph Mem Nun is 91 in its numerical value. So the whole concept of what is known as Im HaKolel in Gematria is where you add one for the complete word. You would also turn the king or water into an amen, which is he who is the faithful one. So 
Just as a little gematria note as we're getting into this page, this chapter is about re regulating our sexual relations. So, lots to say on this, but um, Bezrat Hashem, help us because this is crazy chapter. Um, this is one I've been dreading. I think all of us know that. Okay, but anyway, not about me. It's about what's on this page. Incest, adultery, homosexuality, periods of separation, which is known as nida, by the way, among many other uh, aspects of that. If you've read Parsha Tatsriya, Medzora, you know what we're talking about. If not, go there and review. The Torah gets so real on that part. Okay, so Leviticus 18.6, Leviticus or Exodus 20, verse 13, Leviticus 18.22, and Leviticus 18.19. A mystery. This is the first section. It says forbidden unions are known as arayot. If you have looked in the Talmud at the different sections of Talmud, which, by the way, if you have Handbook of Jewish Thought, let's just take a quick swerve here on um, the tradition chapter, which is chapter nine. It has a breakdown of the Talmud sections. Uh, page 192 looks like this. So this is the oral Torah known as Shas. And uh, if you look in there, we have a section of Talmud called Arayot. Where is it? Should be in here. There's a chapter uh, or there's a whole Talmud uh, tractate basically that's based on it. Uh, thought it was in here. Okay, so Nida. Tractate Nida is one of them. Zavin is the other one. Zav Zavim Slika. And It is not Ariot, it is Horayot, Slika. It is uh, section 440. Uh, so if you look at page 193, it is called Horayot, and this is rulings. So this is under the section called Nezakin. And uh, so, yeah, so this is a whole breakdown of the Talmud. But if you look at the whole section here of uh, Toharot, which is the section on purities, you would get into a lot of this as well. And um, so that's just a little bit of information from handbook. Okay, so back to our forbidden unions. So we have incest, adultery, and the like form one of the three cardinal sins for which a Jew is obliged to sacrifice his life rather than transgress. Many of the Torah mitzvot, if someone forces you to do it upon pain of death, you can actually violate them. But there are three major ones that you do not violate. One of those is forbidden unions. Okay, so shalom to India. We have India in the house. Baruch Hashem. 
Okay, so it says, this gives us some idea of the gravity with which the Torah treats these laws. We cannot expect to gain complete understanding of any of God's laws, still less these laws of Ariot. So we cannot expect to gain complete understanding of any of God's laws. This is why one of the aspects of Torah is to be like water, which is be a humble one that seeks out the lowest places. It says that the Torah is known as water because it seeks out the lowest places. So if you humble yourself to the lowest possible uh, place that you could possibly go, I don't know it all. I have learned this before, but maybe I've missed something. I can't tell you how many times you would just be mind blown if you watch one drosh and rewind that drosh over and over again, you'd be like, how come I didn't hear that last time? With the element of humbling yourself and understanding you cannot attain all of God's laws and your knowing of everything completely from top to bottom, it's an unending process. You would just like, it, it's, it's crazy to see the effects of that. So this could be one of the things that could be misconstrued as a theological dogma that says no one can do the whole Torah. If you just look at what we just read, it says no one can expect to gain complete understanding. Doing is a complete different thing. This is why Shavuot, one of the main things is that we will do and then we will understand. Our understanding will follow after us doing. One of the beautiful insights that came out of the Yom Yerushalayim event that just happened was that it says that our bodies are locked in, in, in our consciousness, like our minds, our hearts, our ability to see, our ability to hear is locked in this world. It's only through the fact of us doing one of the mitzvot that we free up our mind and our heart, all other parts of our bodies to go beyond limitations and to directly connect with Hashem to be able to perceive things on a higher level. In other words, if you're having trouble understanding nidda for, for one, if you begin to do nidda, things that you never would have known without you doing it, you will now know. Many of us who are Shabbat observant, we're Shomer Shabbat, thank Hashem. Outside of being Shomer Shabbat, if you were to present just a few things, your, your whole... It, it's hard for us to imagine this now because, you know, we've been in it. But if you've never been in it and you heard, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Shabbat sounds like, oy vey, why would anyone do that? But for those of us who have experienced Shabbat, tasted of Shabbat, seen the Shabbat, all the senses that we can engage into the Shabbat, all the experiences that we have had, how many of us know that Shabbat is, is mind-blowing? And it continues to be because there's still more and more and more that we have yet to do and more and more and more that we have yet to learn about it. And for the very fact that we're outside the land right now, when we get in the land and start doing Shabbat, oh my gosh, it's going to be like a different dimension. So this is basically what this is speaking to. And I wanted to make sure that I uh, emphasize that because 
sometimes things get taken out of context. So it goes to say, even if we did understand them, we should not observe them for this reason. We don't observe the Torah or any of the mitzvot, the halakot, any of that. We don't observe them because we understand them. That should be first noted because, again, back to we will do and then we will understand. We will do and then we will hear. Na'aseb anishma. Shemot 24-7. Exodus 24-7 says that. So it's not a, really about us like understanding and getting it all and having it all written down and we've taken class after class and now we're doing it. It's like, no, we're doing it and then we learn along the way. This is why one of the, the most important things for us to know, how well, this is another question for ourselves. Welcome to question night, everybody. How well do we receive new information that we have not been aware of as far as what we are doing that could possibly be incorrect. In other words, you find out something that you've been doing and you're like, yes, you should be trying to do this. For instance, um, let's go with wrapping to fill in. So you've been wrapping to fill in and you're like, woohoo, amazing. This is awesome. You've been putting on your head to fill in first. Then you finally like, oh, I should put my arm to fill in on. And then you start wrapping your arm to fill in. And then you like start reciting Brocco. You start uh, speaking all the other passages of the Torah while you're wrapping to fill in backwards. You find out there's an order for putting on to fill in. You're like, oh my gosh, why didn't I read the manual? Well, the thing is, this is a part of the Jewish experience is that you are learning over time how to do things. I don't know if anyone has had that experience, but if you have, then you would quickly know that as you have learned, okay, no, I'll take my tefillin out, I get them prepped, you know, and you go through the whole seder of it. So this is another thing that we have to be aware of as we're learning and studying Torah. We don't know it all. And then we're going to find out some things that will probably just be like uh, nails on a chalkboard. I can't believe Hashem has put up with me for this long. And the thing is, Hashem doesn't put up with us. He's loving us. He's so excited to see his children walking in the truth. Does that sound familiar? Here's the other thing. Think about this with the Talmudim, the disciples of Yeshua HaMashiach. So many times, I know I'm one of them. I do the SMH all the time, shaking my head, because I'm like, how did they miss that? How, what? You know, like when he was talking about my food is to do the will of, of my father, you know, and they were like, who brought him food? How did he get food? And it's like, he wasn't talking about real food. And it's like, well, we're reading that and we get it. But at the time, his Talmudim didn't, you know, like all these different things. He's giving out these parables. And the Talmudim was like, um, Yeshua, can you explain this to me? Can you break this down? And he's like, do you really not get it? You know, and it's like when he did that, it wasn't coming from a place of oy vey, I how long am I going to deal with you on this? It was like, okay, let's sit down. Let's break it down. So that's a part of what we need to understand with our learning. That it's okay to not know everything. And you have a whole lot of uh, opportunities to study, learn, grow. You have a community to engage with. And that's a part of the process. So going on to say... Even if we did understand them, we should not observe them for this reason, but because they are God's laws 
and our life's task is not to fulfill our will, but God's will. So we're doing the mitzvot. We're engaging in Torah, not because we understand it as much as it is that we're doing this for the sake of he who commanded it. It's all about his voice, being obedient to him, loving him, receiving the light that he has given to mankind in a dark world. And as we do mitzvot, we turn darkness into light, not only for ourselves, but for people around us, for the whole entire creation. This is why the effect of what we do not only changes our essence, but it changes creation. The more mitzvot that are increased in the world, the more we can push back against all the corruption and chaos that's happening right now. So next part says, we, as we become more familiar with the Torah's goals, certain underlying ideas may suggest themselves. So here's one of the cool things that just as much as it is a double-edged sword, because sometimes we'll come up with our own thoughts, we'll come up with our own like, oh, what if it's like this? Well, we should take note of those because sometimes naturally in our own thinking, we'll come up with things that are actually codified in commentary. Well, it's just a matter of time before you come across it. But things will start coming up in your commentaries that you're like, oh, I didn't even think of that. So these are some things that begin to, to unlock doors, so to speak. And you'll start, one thing will lead to another in your thinking and your doing and your habits. And so this is one of the beauty uh, parts of Torah. It goes on to say in the next section, incest. As we have, or sleek out, we have seen above that the purpose of sex is to promote a stable home. Wow, that is completely foreign, probably, from the world standard of why have sex. If you just look at what we just read, the Torah is not concerned about the man and the woman who are married to have this physical pleasure and to, to get, you know, what they are desiring and to get their needs fulfilled. It's like, no, it's bigger than the couple. Sex is bigger than those who are engaging in it, which is, it's crazy to think about on that level. The home, the home is so important. It's the central part of Judaism. So much so that the home is to be, to be treated and to also be uh, focused on even on a higher level than the shul. The shul is considered on a lower level than the home. And it's kind of crazy that what you do at home really affects what you do at shul. So if you ever have a time where you're getting together with your community and chasve shalom, things go crazy, the source of it is what's going on at home, which is a very uncomfortable thing to really mention. This is why if you go to Titus, uh, it's one of the Gerots in the, the canon of Matthew through Revelation, and it talks about the men who are to be the elders, or I think it's termed as bishops in the letter. The, the people you want to set up as leadership of the community, they need to be people who have a home that is orderly. 
you know, uh, children who are obedient and not acting all cray cray, you know, and they're a, a loving husband to their wife. Because why? If those individuals are going to be taking care of a community of people, um, you need to make sure that there's a little consistency there so that all of the chaos that could ensue within the community is already being influenced by what's going on at home. Because what goes on at home actually is like it radiates out. This is why the more we have our homes intact, the more our community will become intact. And this is one of the things that the exile is forcing us as Jews to do, take care of our homes. We are scattered from the land all across the globe. Many Jews have got to return home. They have gotten to do it. And it's like Baruch Hashem, people have made Aliyah and soon to come, we will make Aliyah, Bezrat Hashem. But the thing is, as we're making Aliyah, one of the problems that's happening is that the exile is coming with some of the ones who are making Aliyah, which is creating havoc in our homeland. And so, as Mahavruta mentioned, we must make sure that as we get out of exile, that the exile doesn't follow us. So, in other words, if you think about this on the big picture as we're talking about, the more and more our communities away from the land of Israel are becoming orderly, becoming more compassionate, loving, kind, unified, walking in truth, deepening our maturity, our love for Hashem, increasing and all of that. The more we do that collectively, as we come together, it's just going to make those times more and more and more emphatic and powerful and amazing. Just like it is in a microcosm, that as we go throughout our week and, and outside of our Zoom classes, outside of our shul services and things that we do uh, community service-wise, as we're working on making ourselves more orderly, getting more healthy, getting more truth and understanding, getting our minds cleared, all these different things will help when we start to come together. So, Shomo, you have your hand up? Yep, since we're on this subject, um, chapter 16 of The Path of the Just comes to bear on this. Um, the virtue of purity, I'll read a little bit of it. Okay. Um, purity entails corrective measures aimed at the refinement of one's heart and thoughts. Because this is where the sexual encounters begins. It's in the mind especially for us guys so guys listen up man this is a big one the purification of your thoughts no thoughts that are contrary um especially since we're still in Baikra, especially in parashat kedoshim where the high priest goes in on yom kippur can you imagine any stray thoughts it doesn't have to be an impure thought. It could be any thought that's contrary to Hashem because he's approaching the Kisei Kavod, so to speak. So purity, the refinement of Midos. So uh, one's heart and thoughts. This idiom was used by David who said in Tehillim 51 to uh, Lev Tahor Barali Elohim. Create in me or for me 
O God, a pure heart. The purpose of this virtue is that a person should prevent the evil inclination from influencing his actions. I mean, what do we see today? We see actions that are contrary to what the Torah has defined the most intimate of relationships between a husband and wife should be. You know, so the question would be, is the actions that we're seeing, what's motivating them? You know, because if you if you just take the last point you mentioned, you know, not having your actions be motivated by your Yetzahara. Well, so many times do we ever examine our actions? Or do you pause? Yeah. Do you stop yourself? Or does it take someone else to do it for you? If it takes someone else to do it for you, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with your heart. Because what did Yeshua say about this? It's not that which goes into the man that defiles him or makes him unclean. It what, it's what comes out. Not just what your speech is, but your actions as well. Because you know thought tends to be the driving motivator for all of this. And this is what the Ram call is driving at, is our intentions, the kavana that's behind it. You know, the purification of these things. Because, you know, when Hashem says, be fruitful and multiply, he's, the Torah says basically define what the purpose of sex is, because it's a part of creation. Anything other than that is contrary. It's not what creation was meant to function as. And yet we see today contrary behavior contrary thinking, man passing laws against what is right. As, this, as it says in the Pasuk in Isaiah, well to them that call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light, bitter for sweet, and so forth. You know, it's, <clears throat> yeah, like you said, the purpose of this virtue is that a person should prevent his evil inclination from influencing his actions. All of his actions should be permeated with the knowledge of fear of the eternal Yireh Hashemayim, and should be free of sin uh, and lustful desire. This is relevant even to an action that involves one's physical and material needs. I mean, what we're going to get into here in Master Plan, because I was reading a little bit ahead, uh, to create and foster such an environment, many things are necessary, and many of the mitzvot of the Torah are directed to this end, as we have already seen and shall and shall still have occasion to note later on in the book. You know, and the Ram call continues, for even though one conducts himself with abstinence, taking from the world no more than what is essential, he must still purify his heart and thought so that little that he does take should have nothing to do with pleasure and desire. Rather, the intent of his actions should be directed toward the good that will emerge from this deed. And it should be bound to knowledge and the service of the eternal. When you give birth to children, one of the things you do as a parent, you're, you're giving. You can't take from them. This is the problem with incest. It takes. It destroys the very fabric, this very fragile relationship, for lack of a better word. You know, and parents are supposed to give. I, I look at my mother. She gave constantly you know and, and now this is what i do i constantly give i'm not looking for pleasure or any entertainment from it because or any prestige yeah you know, i mean this is what the rom call is really driving at impurity you know 
So what uh, page did you just read? Uh, this is Mashilat Yeshurim. It's chapter 16, The Virtue of Purity, page 105. So to tag with that as we go forward, that when the Mashiach Yeshua, our Mashiach, when he says, you know, it's not what goes into our mouth, but what comes out. There's actually a story that is connected to a midrash about the Mashiach appearing to a group of Hasidim. And he says, you know, you're scrutinizing, you know, all of your, your kosher uh, items that you want to eat. But if you would only be that type of, if you would only have that type of scrutiny with what comes out of your mouth, this is what makes it's so beautiful to understand, number one, Mashiach wasn't talking about food, but number two, he's actually telling us to take our kosher observance to the next level. Don't just look at kashru being looking for hexers on things that you eat, but see your kashru as things that are going to come out of your mouth. Is there a hexer on the statement that you're about to speak? Is there a hexer on the action that you're about to do? Is there a kosher hexer on the thought that you are allowing yourself to ha uh, have as your habitation? Because you are where your thoughts are. And so that was just a beautiful drop that was uh, connected to really the depth that the Mashiach was taking us to when he said that statement. And that gets so poorly missed in the sake of saying, well, by this, he made all foods clean. It's like he actually was teaching us a deep, deep concept of kashrut. It's not just about what you eat. It's also about what you say. It's also about what you do. And this is why it is so important for us to really take our time with what we're studying and what we're reading. Chew on it, examine it, rewind it, replay it back. Take our time. And the other thing about any of the sexual relations that are not kosher to the Torah, they teach you how to be a taker as opposed to a giver. Because if you think about all of the unfruitful unions that do exist, homosexuality being one of them, there's no way to produce children from that union. Now, there's been the adoption process and things like that. And people may say, what about couples who have trouble having children? Well, we should also note that Yisrael was born from uh, infertile parents. Abraham and Sarah had trouble conceiving children. So did Yitzhak and Rivka. So did Yaakov and Leah. There was an infertility that was at the root of us being born as a nation. So we are totally understanding, you know, what it means in that regards. But when you look at the fact of, you know, having same-sex unions take place, they're only teaching you how to fulfill yourself and not how to perpetuate into the next generation. This is why if you think about a community of people who don't get married and things like that, they don't, you know, have the, the ability to have children and things like that, that community dies out. And there's no fruit from that. There's no increase in progeny. There's no next generation. So that's connected with one of the things that Hashem says from the beginning, be fruitful and multiply. And he said this in connection with the fact that we're supposed to take dominion over creation. 
We're supposed to steward creation. As Hashem has done above, we as mankind are supposed to do below. This is our job to ensure the perpetuation and the building and the rectification of creation. So this is what sexual relationships are teaching us. And so it goes on to say that on page 91, it says a stable, happy home is a universal requirement if children are to grow up bearing the moral ideas of humanity. If you want to know what is up with the immorality in the world today, let's go back home and check out things at home. What are we doing at home? It radiates out. It's creating a whole wave of problems for our generation today. And it goes on to say the Torah of the nations of the world. So go back for a second. The 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 nations have Torah, and it's the moral ideas of humanity that are the expression of the Torah that the nations have. This whole thing about Torah for the nations, for from Zion, the Torah will go forth to the whole entire world. At Mount Sinai, when the Torah was revealed, it was revealed in the 70 known languages of the world so that everyone had the ability to hear the Torah, hear Hashem speak directly to them, no matter what nation you were a part of. Same thing happened in Acts chapter 2. This is Shavuot. Torah was given to all of mankind, and the Midrash says, why was the Torah given in the desert, in the wilderness, in a no-man's land, to teach you that the Torah doesn't belong to any particular person? No one can just say, it's my Torah, and I want it now, and no one else can have it. Hashem said, where did I give the Torah? Who's willing to come to the wilderness? And the wilderness is a place away from your, your comfort zone. It's a, it's a place away from everything that you know, all of your uh, constraints and limitations, all of your desires and mind frame and, and time frame and all of that. All of those things have to bow and be nullified into the existence of Hashem. This is why when Yeshua went out into the wilderness to be tempted is so important because this is the repair and the rectification for how we are to be in relationship and connection with Hashem. It's not about us getting our way. We're tempted by the evil inclination, just like Mashiach was. Turn these stones into bread. I know you hungry. I know you can do it. You have power in your hands. You're a Zadik. You're connected to the creator. Just go ahead and do it. Just do it. Just, it's going to be okay. No problem. Say Abraka, eat. Be happy. Be merry. And Mashiach said, well, what does Hashem say? You know, what's in the Torah? Because every time we're faced with a challenge, the response is what's in the Torah? So it goes on to say that I'm going to reread this verse, that a stable, happy home is a universal requirement. It goes across the globe for all mankind. If children are to grow up bearing the moral ideas of humanity, the Torah of the nations of the world. So it goes on to say it is all the more necessary as an environment in which children can, influence, can flourish 
who will proudly bear the ideals of the Torah of Israel. To create and foster such an environment, many things are necessary, and many of the mitzvot of the Torah are directed to this end. You want to know how to have a happy life. You want to know how to have, you know, better thinking, better actions, the way, the way you carry yourself and engage in the world. The mitzvot are these layers of refinement for us. So then it goes on to say in the next paragraph, one absolutely essential element is that the parents must be and must be seen to be givers. One of the insights that came out of the Geula Summit is one of the ladies was talking about her son who was like 15 years old. I don't know if that was his age now or at the time, but all of that to say the result of this was he became uh, very, very wealthy. Uh, he was getting grants and being on the cover of very popular magazines for his community uh, service and for uh, the things that he was doing to enable his generation to succeed in life. He was doing basketball camps and sports camps, all sorts of things for the people who are in lower income communities and just a very uh, PR type person. And it was just like, how, who taught him this? How did, how did he get himself in this position? Mom, dad, did you coach him? And the mom from her mouth said, my son told me, I just did what I see you and Abba do. Her son became very successful at the age of just 15, not to mention what he's doing nowadays, just because he watched what his parents did. He didn't go to self-help classes and self-help courses. Obviously, those things are along the way. But the main thing was what he saw at home. And what he saw at home led to what he did outside of home. That's what this, this chapter is teaching us. And this is one of the effects of sex is what kind of environment is created in the home that affects the people in there and the people who leave from there. Because Bezrat Hashem, when we have children, they grow up and they get out and they go do their own thing and create their own home. But the success of their home is based off of one of the many things. What have we set them up for? Hashem does a whole lot, you know, to, to really come alongside us and assist. We have friends, family, community, all sorts of other avenues. But the main thing we should know is we have a big part of that as parents. So then it goes on to say in the next section, adultery. This is still on page 91 in Master Plan. Torah Jews have always prided themselves that they know who their fathers are. My goodness, this statement is just very, very like, whoa, ouch. One of the many things that's happened, at least in the world today, that many people don't know their dad. Many people have estranged relationships with them. We see from Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, fathers and sons who pretty much can be seen as one. So much so that when we talk about Yosef, he's no different than the way we talk about Yaakov in a way. 
like the 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 commentaries that say these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. Yosef is the generations of Yaakov. You want to know who Yaakov's children are? Look at Yosef. Is basically what that's saying. And when Balaam was trying to curse Yisrael, what led him to the Matovu? Matovu. He was trying to curse us. And his curse got turned into one of the main brakot that we recite as we enter into the shul. Think about how powerful is that? A sorcerer is like, I'm trying to kill you, but I walk up and I see your actions and I'm like, I can't kill you. I must add to your sidur. What? <laughs> because what does it say? He saw the tents, the encampments of Yisrael, the way that their openings faced away from each other. He saw that we were able to encamp by our houses of our fathers. Like we could trace our lineage. This is in drastic contrast to what we saw during the plague of the firstborn in Egypt. There were multiple children dead in the households of the Egyptians because which firstborn do you want to talk about? Is it the firstborn of his wife, his, his concubine, some strange lady he met on the street, you know, in, in Egypt, you know, all this kind of stuff is like, I don't know. Is that even my child? Where did that one come from? I didn't know he was here. That is literally the reality that existed outside of the Jewish nation. And this is one of the aspects of why adultery is so bad, because marital reunions that operate outside of Kiddushin, where there's the husband and the wife who've been through the hoopah and the, they have a ketubah and things like that. If there are children created outside of that union, they're known as mamzerim, which are illegitimate children, which means they have trouble figuring out where they fit in. There, there's an estrangement. There's a stigma on them. This is why one of the slanders against the Mashiach is that, can you really call Yosef his dad? Can you really? Can you really say that? You know, because many people or many ideas exist that say, yeah, Yeshua's mom, she was, she did not have, you know, relations with her husband in order to conceive the Mashiach. And this creates a whole big, big issue because how can you have a Mashiach who was born outside of a marital union? So if you think about the, the effects of what we're really talking about and why when Mashiach was asked, well, should we be divorcing? You know, like, what do you say to this? And he said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moshe Rabbeinu had to give over the prescriptions of what is known as a get, a divorce. But I tell you that Hashem made it so that a man and a woman would leave their mother and their father and the two would come together, become one flesh, which means that children are born from the mother and the father becoming one which is the child is known as the one flesh of the man and the woman who have left their father and their mother. This is the desired intent of Hashem. But we as mankind have come along and said, you know what? No, nah, that doesn't matter. We'll just make one flesh however we want to do it, or we'll make no flesh. We don't care. And the we don't care attitude has led to coldness. 
and darkness and harshness in the world. And we wonder why we have such things as inflation, corrupt governments. Did you know in, Master, in a handbook of Jewish thought, chapter two, there's a whole chapter on reward and punishment, divine providence, apparent injustice. Those chapters, if you haven't read them, please do. I give you all permission in the world. Skip and go straight to those chapters. It's, it's, insane. it's intense. You will have to backtrack because some of the things that are mentioned in there are already answered in previous chapters, but you'll see things like Hashem set up the leaders of the governments based off of the actions of the people. We can merit in a good way, a good leader over our governments, or we can merit in a bad way, bad leaders of our governments. And I'm saying bad as in like, oy vey circumstances that come upon us. Why is this happening? Why are they pushing these agendas that are like so crazy? It's because we brought this on ourselves. This is a part of why, what kind of thoughts and what kind of speech are we engendering and setting up in our homes that are setting up communities and societies, nations and countries? And what are we doing to the globe? This is like, it's crazy to connect all these things back to, is it really that important what goes on at home behind closed doors? Yes, it is. So that's the adultery section. Homosexuality is the next section on page 92. I just want to mention what's at the bottom here. It starts, uh, well, I'm going to read two parts. I want to read the, the paragraph that starts with, so long as, I want to read this statement, so long as Jews were loyal to Torah, the healthy attitude to sex, which it promulgates, Torah says sex is good, it's a gift from Hashem, and it can be used in a very, very healthy way to mitigate the effects of the evil inclination. Did you know it takes the evil inclination in order for you to produce children? You have to have some aspect of gratification in the child making process in order for that conception to actually occur, because based off of what's going on with the man and the woman as they're having those relations that gets input into the child. And so much so that the sages encourage us have holy and pure thoughts as we're engaged in that because we don't want to create children that come out with these uh kind of horrible tendencies and uh and kind of uh aspects of them so that gets a little bit intense and it also mentions in the talmud that the 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 child comes from the mind of the father so the the thoughts that are going through our mind during this is so important and so the torah is here to say within these confines is how you do this in order to ensure success and a, a beautiful perpetuation of mankind as opposed to something detrimental. And you can even just see the effects of children who have been born outside of marital unions. It's not a broad paintbrush that we can paint with, but more times than not, children who are born of these unions, they don't get raised up in a home of two parents. And that creates issues between not only the parents, but the children, because they're like, they're frustrated and they don't know why. 
and then they go spend time with their parent, their other parent, you know, and, and it's just like it's a crazy schedule, custody battles. It, there's a lot of stress and trauma that gets involved. And it's because we have chosen to do things outside of the prescription of Torah. And Torah is like, here is how you make sex healthy. This is the way to bring health to mankind. It was also mentioned on the Yom Yerushalayim teaching that Torah is medicine for people who study it. People who study it with the sincere will and intent to do what it commands out of a heart that loves the one who commanded it. It becomes medicine for us. And this medicine works on levels that we're not conscious of. So when we throw ourselves into mitzvot, whether we know how to do it in its totality or not, which again, we just mentioned, how can we totally know how to do it? Okay. But whatever level we're able to do it and to beautify it and all of those things, as we learn, as we grow, giving ourselves into these things actually brings an element of health to us. It said in Bereshit that on the day we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will die. This death wasn't an instantaneous death. It's a death, like I mentioned, what's connected to death? Hatred, evil, like bad attitudes, all sorts of just sickness. You know, all the chaos that we're facing is effects of death. So this is what happens when we do things outside of the health uh, prescription that the Torah gives us. And it also says that the happiness of the Jewish home seemed to have discouraged the growth of homosexuality. So part of some of the sexual sins that exist in the world is a bitterness from somewhere, whether it be in an interpersonal relationship, whether it be with people's circumstances in life, it could also be used as a convenience that, well, there's nothing else for me to do, so I'll just do this. Or there's no one else for me, I can't find anyone. And convenience turns into something that just pulls everything away from its proper course. But we just read that the happiness of a Jewish home will really discourage that. It will really cut down on a lot of that. And it was interesting that it, it, it chose to say homosexuality in particular. So the next statement I want to read is from the paragraph that starts with more moral realities. It says, moral realities do not change. God sees further than we do. The morality that existed in the first century is no different from the morality that exists in the 21st century. There's no change in the morality as far as like, okay, maybe the level of it, okay, and things like that. But as far as the whole concept of morality and what will help us have a better morality, it's no, it's, it doesn't change. I'll, I'll keep reading because this probably says it a lot better than I could. It says, it would be presumptuous to assume that life could be enhanced by behavior concerning which the creator of life states the contrary. So repeat, 
it would be presumptuous to assume that life could be enhanced by behavior concerning which the creator of life states the contrary. This is what I was saying as far as like, when we look at the morality of the first century, if we thought homosexuality would work back then, and oy vey, it was like, well, okay, that was the first century. Now that we've gotten 20 plus centuries away from that, let's try again. It's going to be better. It's like, actually, no, it's worse. So these are some of the things, this is just like hard hitting stuff. So the next page, page 93 says, consenting adults in private. It says the Torah does not accept the argument that an act done in private affects no one but one's self. In other words, two consenting adults agree, hey, that's fine. This isn't uh, a sexual crime. You know, we'll just go do it because we're in agreement to do so. And we'll just go do our thing. No one has to know. It won't affect anybody else. And it's like, actually, Torah comes in the room and says, well, yes, it does. If we didn't know, the Torah already tells us if you want to be a person who is a thief, if you want to be a person who lies, if you want to be a person who speaks Lashon Hara, if you want to be a person who breaks Shabbat, if you want to be a person who makes idols, choose any of the other mitzvot apart from sex. Torah already shows us, hey, it has a ripple effect. It affects you. It affects, what did we read in Pirkei Avot? Our actions have an effect on our very essence. And we already know that based off of what's going on with us, it pours out on the other people. So much so that the Baal Shem Tov said what? When you see character flaws and things that make you mad in other people, that's a reflection of what's going on with you. The reason why that's bothering you is because that's what you need to fix. So you think so-and-so is lazy. You think so-and-so is just such a, a, a foul mouth it's like, what about your mouth? And that's when it just goes, oh my gosh. Like, it's just like, oh, can we not have that insight? Why do we have to talk about this? But this is why I really commend our Musar class because we really talk about things that are hard hitting. You know, a, a big part of Torah study is like really having fun, enjoying the insights. But another really big part of Torah study is like stuff that will hit you right in the throat and make you have to uh, be in pain for a little bit and figure out some things with Hashem. Like you got to go talk to Hashem like Hashem, I'm not okay with this. What did I just hear of what, you know, me, little old me, you know, and things like that. So if we look at all the rectifications that we would desire, if we start doing them to ourselves, even though we may think, oh, my, my language is great. It's like, really? Is it? Scrutinize your words. We talked about looking for hectares on food. Let's look for hectares on what we're doing. So in the middle of this paragraph, it says, science now knows that in many complex systems, small causes can have extremely unpredictable effects. So there's that. And then to conclude this, this section, it says, when we abuse our powers, the consequences are potentially always grave. So 
In other words, this whole idea of consenting adults doing what they want to do in private, no, nothing's going to, you know, there, nobody else will find out and all these kinds of things. It's like, well, what did our Mashiach say? What you do in secret will be brought to light. It's only a matter of time. So, Shlomo, you got a hand. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, Romans 12, 1. You know, brothers, I adjure you to offer yourselves as a living offering, Korban High, you know. <clears throat> and then on in Path of the Just, on the chapter 19, The Elements of Piety, on page 125, the second paragraph, uh, we also find this in the case of Cain and Hevel, how Hevel brought an offering from the firstborn of his sheep and from the fattest ones, while Cain's offering was from the chaff of the produce of the ground. As expounded upon by our sages of blessed memory in Bereshit Rabbah 22.5, and what was the outcome? And the eternal showed regard to Hevel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he showed no regard. Bereshit 4.4. And it says in Malachi 1.14, Cursed is the deceiver who has in his flock a choice male, but pledges and sacrifices a blemished offering. For I am a great king, and it is befitting to bring from the choicest of animals. Are we bringing the choice, the first class unblemished offering of ourselves? Because all this stuff we're talking about here in Master Plan, all that stuff is a blemish. Wow. What were you just reading from? Path of the Just, chapter 19, The Elements of Piety, on page 125, the second paragraph down. Todarabah. Wow. That is such a, a beautiful way to really uh, bring together everything that we've talked about uh, in this chapter of Master Plan. So we have one more section, and it talks about the period of separation. This is another thing. I keep mentioning the, the Yerushalayim teaching. It was such a, an impactful event for me. I guess I'm just like in, in love with music and stuff. And uh, Shlomo Karlebach was one of the great rabbis of our generation. He's passed away a while ago now, but he, he was all about song, music. He called everyone Hevra, like a beloved congregation of people gathering. A, a, a beloved gathering is what a Hevra is. And uh, he was so big on this and getting everyone to get up and sing and dance and create joy within the, the body of Israel. So, and in the, in the whole entire world, by the way, but in there, it was talk, there was one uh, of the ladies who was teaching that this was very balanced with men and women also teaching. And one of the ladies in there mentioned that, you know, we read about the account of Shavuot, you know, when we read Parsha Yitro, where Matan Torah happens. And what is one of the things Hashem says that the men and the women, like your the husbands and the wives, you have to separate for a three-day period to prepare yourself for the revelation of the Torah. And then we learn about the, the laws of Nidah, the family purity laws, and things like that. All of these things require separation. 
Another aspect of separation in, in Torah is when we eat, we separate meat and dairy. So there is a separation of that which nurtures life and that which gave its life. So we, we basically create a distinction between life and death. We read this in Parsha and more about the Kohen among all people who should be away from the contamination of a human body after the, the person has passed away. So there's a, the, the whole level that you would read about throughout the Torah that talks about things that we have to separate, separating wool and linen when we have our clothing, uh, no cross species sowing of our, our plants. We don't make grapples, you know, we don't take grape seeds and apple seeds and fuse them into one so that we can have apples or grapes that are the size of apples or apples that taste like grapes and all of that. I know that was really specific because I've seen grapples before. So that's the first thing that came to mind. But anyway, we don't uh, crossbreed animals. You know, we don't take our chickens and put them with, you know, horses or anything like that. That's just, we don't do that. Same thing in human relations. We also don't crossbreed. This is why, again, Hashem said, I desire that a man and a woman leave their mother and their father and the two come together, become one flesh. That's how we do it. We don't do it any other way. And Parsha Kedoshim gave us lots of prescriptions. Actually, Parsha Akhari Mot did as well. Lots of prescriptions of what not to do as far as relations that we should not engage in. And it is, it's page after page. So separation is a big, big thing. No greeches either. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's wow. Okay, so a period of separation, page 93, it says, in the animal world, we often find a periodicity, or, whoa, this is an interesting word. In the animal world, we often find a periodicity in sexual activity. Yeah, it's, it's all good. It's like any other uh, cross fruit you can think of. I think they have like a... Uh, some kind of kiwi berry type thing where it's a like a type of berry that's mixed with a kiwi so that instead of having the kiwi that you peel the skin off of you just bite the whole thing and the berry tastes like a kiwi i don't know what that thing is called but yeah so that's a thing but anyway uh there's a there's a time where the sexuality even in animals comes to a cease there's a a, a period to it and it says this is programmed and regulated by instinct. So isn't it interesting? Hashem was like, listen, when I created the animals, they knew when they needed to separate and, and not be together for marital reunions. But with human beings, I had to go, well, there's this thing known as Nida and you need to separate and like all this kind of stuff. And it's just like animals do it already. So <laughs> take a note. And it says, the sexual life of human beings is free from the restraints of instinct. One of the big problems that's happening with sex in today's world is that it's done by instinct. It's not done based off of Kedusha protocol, which is one of the reasons why it's so tragic in its impact on the world is because it's based off of instinct. 
we have reduced ourselves down to an animalistic status. And now we're engaging in one of the holiest of holy acts. Hasidus puts it this way, that what is achieved in the unity or the union of the man and the woman after they get married and enter into Yehud, oneness, that is what it, what it, what it is like when a person does a mitzvah. We're creating a marital union type effect in the world when we do a mitzvah. So if we could just say la on that for a second. It says, instead, the restraints have to be imposed by the freely choosing human will. The Torah introduces periodicity to Jewish conjugal life by confining sexual activity to the time outside the menstrual period. And one of the things that happens with this whole cycle of time and activity is that the, the week of the menstruation that happens for the woman is likened to sitting Shiva on a, on a spiritual and symbolic level because there is a mourning aspect that takes place because there has been the potential for life that was lost. Not to say that it's like, it's horrible if you're going through menstruation and things like that, but to say that one of the things that the separation is happening for is because this is not a time to be joyous. There was a potential soul that could have been brought down into a human body and it was lost. And Hashem says, I need you to separate. And among many things, this is one of the aspects of reality to that. So it goes on to say the physio physiological basis of menstruation is that whenever the ovum completes its cycle without being fertilized, the womb lining sheds the proteins it had been storing for a possible fetus. So in other words, there is a, a clearing out process that is taking place to, to kind of reset and reestablish for Bezrat Hashem, the, the next opportunity for there to be procreation to take place, everything will already be set. So with the refraining from sexual activity during this point, we're allowing the cleansing process to take effect. This is another thing that we should understand too about Shavuot and the three-day separation that we were called to at the origin of the festival. We're not called to this today, by the way. So you don't have to feel like, okay, Shavuot's coming up, got to separate for three days. That's not the halakha, just throw that out there. But to say that there's a cleansing process that takes place through the separation. Now, with all the separations that we mentioned, apply what we just learned. There's a cleansing process that takes place in the midst of the separation. One of the penultimate times of cleansing that happened during the process of separation was when the Mashiach gave up his spirit and allowed himself to be subject to death, his body placed in a tomb for how long? Three days. What in the world? 
is there something to the three days of us having to separate and have this this uh process before the revelation of the torah could happen so the revelation of torah is like on par with the resurrection well one of the things we should note is that tractate shabbat of all places mentions what happened on the giving of the torah day aka shabbat resurrection because hashem was speaking and our souls were flying out of our bodies and hashem said no 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 go back go back go back into the body because you got to do this in your body and it's just like this happened after a three-day separation period and why is the giving of the torah mentioned in tractate shabbat among other tractates is because when the first shabbat happened it happened on a shabbat the Torah was given on a Shabbat. So when you think now about separation and purification and resurrection, when we enter into the Shabbat, we resurrect. We become pure soul on that day. We're able to really hear Hashem. This is why we spend so much time in prayer, so much time in Torah study on Shabbat. We refrain from mundane activity because it's like all the all the receptors are like wide open. It's just like everything can go like much, much farther now. So to go on to say here, it says, so I'm gonna see your hand. I want to finish this section real quick. So it says that the uh the next sentence here, the somewhat depressive effect often unconscious of this slight loss a kind of death is important enough in the eyes of torah to exclude the person for a short time from the holy temple which should be entered only in a state of pure joy in other words why is it that when there is a, a woman in nida and anyone else has been uh, made impure through that process why are we not allowed to go to the temple? Because there's, there's a lessened joy that's taking place. And we should not enter into the temple in a state that is opposite or lacking in joy. So think about that with the third temple. Why should we be joyous for the coming redemption? Because we're going to be entering into the temple. We have to enter in a state of joy. And Hashem wants our joy to start now in the time where it's most painful, most heart-wrenching. If we can have joy now, imagine how much more joy we will have then. This is why Mashiach Yeshua tells us that take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulations, but my shalom I give to you. And the Mashiach personified and expressed this as he was carrying his crucifixion stake. And it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the crucifixion stake. And he was able to do it with joy. How many of us, when we're in the middle of what is like bothering us physically and mentally, psychologically, spiritually, how can we be in a place of joy? the Mashiach showed us how to do it. We can't be in those circumstances. We got to be ahead of those circumstances. 
We got to be in it, but not of it, because we know we are to be pulled above it. So this is another reason why being attached to Mashiach Yeshua is so important is because he teaches us how to take the darkest times and infuse that time with light and overflow it out into the rest of creation. And we are learning this in a place among all places about what we do with sex. So the last part, and then I'll hand it over to Shlomo. It says this on page 94. Such are the subtleties of the Torah's depths or the Torah's depth psychology. The Torah's depth psychology. The Torah is deep and it has some psychology that will be affected through the depths of it. This is why, again, take your time. There are subtleties in Torah that you have to watch out for. The Torah thinks so highly of marital union that it makes the observance of this mitzvah a touchstone of allegiance to Torah life on par with the observance of Shabbat and Yom Kippur. It is possible for a Jewish community to exist without a synagogue. Hold up. It is possible for a Jewish community to exist without a synagogue. Did you know that? One can pray at home, but it is, it is not possible for it to exist without a mikveh. In Nazi Germany, as in other dangerous periods of our history, Jewish women, Jewish heroines, braved the perils of the night in order to go to the mikveh. They knew that Jewish spiritual survival depended on them. See bibliography for books in English on this subject. And I'll conclude with saying this. There's a big difference between not having a mikveh and not wanting a mikveh. Just like there's a big difference between not having a completed conversion versus not wanting to have a complete conversion. The difference is this. Who is the mikveh of Yisrael, regardless of where we are and regardless of what we own and possess? Hashem, Jeremiah tells us, Hashem is the mikveh of Yisrael. The Torah is a mikveh. Tears are a mikvah. Our fellow Jew is our mikvah. Anytime we recite a thanksgiving blessing, that is a mikvah. And it does not uh, negate the need for a physical mikvah. But if you don't have a physical mikvah, there are things that you can do in the meantime. But yes, our goal should be to strive for a mikvah. We at Magan Yeshenu don't have our own mikvah, but we have access to mikvot around us, and we have to schedule in accordance with what they have available for us. And this is other things that we should be praying for as a community as we get our own place. We get our own space. We need to make having a mikvah part of those brakot to Hashem, part of our prayers. So that'll conclude our section, chapter 23 of Master Plan. Shlomo, take it away, and then we'll count the Omer. <laughs> Yay. Um, Orkaim, 
buckle up because it's gonna it's good. <laughs> okay. Um, on Vaigra eighteen thirty in Parasha Achare Mot, you shall observe my safeguard so as not to do any of the abominable traditions. Remember that abominable. You've frozen on my end. I don't know if you're still speaking on your side. I don't know if connectivity is uh, crazy. Okay. So in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and count the Omer, Shlomo. Uh, hopefully you can reconnect and then we'll continue with Or Hakaim. So I'm going to go ahead and pull up the Omer count for us. And then, Bezrat Hashem, we can get back to Shlomo. So, Hashem, may you cause Shlomo's connection to be reestablished so he can hear us and we can hear him and we can partake and receive of Or Hakaim insight. All right, so I'm going to stand and the blessing for the Omer count is on the screen. I'm going to refresh my screen to make sure that I have the correct day on here pull this up earlier so if you have the uh chabad website uh they also have it or you have your personal app okay the bracha for counting the omer baruch atah adonai eloheinu menaka olam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotah betsi banu al sefirat ha-omer Today is 39 days, which is five weeks and four days of the Omer. May the merciful one restore unto us the service of the Beit HaMikdash to its place, speedily in our days. Amen. Selah. For the choir master, a song with instrumental music, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his countenance shine upon us forever, that your way be known on earth your salvation among all nations. The nations will extol you, O God. All the nations will extol you. The nations will rejoice and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples justly and guide the nations on earth forever. The peoples will extol you, O God. All the peoples will extol you, for the earth will have yielded its produce and God our God will bless us. God will bless us and all from the farthest corners of the earth shall fear him. We implore you by the great power of your right hand, release the captive, accept the prayer of your people, strengthen us, purify us, awesome one, mighty one. We beseech you, guard as the apple of the eye those who seek your oneness. Bless them, cleanse them, bestow upon them forever your merciful righteousness. Powerful holy one in your abounding goodness, guide your congregation. Only an exalted one, turn to your people who are mindful of your holiness. Accept our supplication and hear our cry, you who knows secret thoughts. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Master of the universe, you have commanded us through Moshe, your servant, to count Sfirat HaOmer, in order to purify us from our evil unclean and uncleanness. As you have written in your Torah, you shall count for yourselves from the day following the day of rest, 
from the day on which you bring the omer as a wave offering. The counting shall be for seven full weeks. Until the day following the seventh week shall you count 50 days, so that the souls of your people, Israel, may be cleansed from their defilement. Therefore, may it be your will, Adonai our God, and the God of our forefathers, that in the merit of the Sfirat HaOmer, which I counted today, that the blemish I have caused in the Sfirah of Netzach Shev Yesod be rectified, and I may be purified and sanctified with supernal holiness. May abundant bounty thereby be bestowed upon all the worlds. May it rectify our nefesh, ruach, and neshama from every baseness and defect, and may it purify and sanctify us with your supernal holiness. Amen. Selah. Mashiach now. Okay, Shlomo, you're back. You hear us? Yep. Connection. Okay. We Excited. lost you in the middle of War Haqqaim. I guess it was too holy for the connection. <laughs> Yeah, but we asked Hashem to boost the frequencies. <laughs> so if you want to go ahead and do that. <laughs> See, I'm just saying, we just ask Hashem and he's just like, okay, well, you want to hear, you want to hear Torah? Okay, sure. I got you. That's just saying, it always happens when I'm about to share something really good. <laughs> well, you know, it actually happened at the Geula Summit. One of the, uh, the speakers was, is a Cohen. And he was getting ready to do the priestly benediction. And as he started to like get his kavana together and started like speaking, because the whole thing is before Cohen can do that, they have to say a bracha so that they get put into a posture of loving kindness towards the people that they're blessing. He was like starting to do all this and like talk. And then he began to go eh, 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 like all this static. And then he started reciting the verse and Schiffer was like, hold up, hold up. We can't hear you. <laughs> oh my goodness, man! I, guess I, real, I don't man. feel so bad now. <laughs> yeah. All right, go ahead. Oh my <laughs> okay. Um, as I said before, uh, Orkaim on Vayikra eighteen verse thirty and Parsha Achare Mot. Veshamartem uh, et me shamarti. You shall observe my safeguard so as not to do any of the abominable traditions that were done before you and not contaminate yourselves through them. I am Hashem, your God. At first glance, this entire verse seems to be simply repeating what has been said in verses 24 through 26 which warn us to keep the laws of Ariot lest we become contaminated. Orkaim explains that, in fact, our verse refers to a new matter. He begins by explaining uh, Mishamarti. With this verse, Hashem commands us to observe preventative measures. But we're talking about a master plan, that mm -hmm. very thing. Right. Uh, the, that protect a person and ensure he not come to stumble in an actual abominable act of forbidden relations. This is the meaning of the verse's statement, you shall observe my safeguards, Misha Marti. Safeguard refers to a fence, 
that is a protective measure that prevents a person from committing an actual sin. The reason we must observe safeguards is, as the verse goes on to say, so as not to do any of the abominable traditions that were done before you, that is, even inadvertently. The next clause of our verse explains why we must take pains to guard against even inadvertent transgressions of the Ariot prohibitions. Now, although you will not be liable for punishment for an abominable act, and the Hebrew word is toiva, which really means detestable, uh, see, abominable act that was done unintentionally, you nevertheless become contaminated through the abominable act, whether intentional or unintentional. The point is you become to me. And your sanctity will be impaired. This is the meaning of what the verse says further and not contaminate yourselves through them. Meaning you must oh. observe my safeguards due on, to this concern that if you breach the safeguards, you might come to contaminate yourself by committing an unintentional transgression. Orkaim explains why the verse ends with the phrase, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem, your God. As for that which the verse says further, I am Hashem, your God, it means to say as follows, if the Jewish people become contaminated by acting immorally, even inadvertently, they become reduced from the stature of having the name of Hashem. May it be blessed uniquely associated with them. These sins create a breach in our unique relationship with Hashem because the abomination of Ariot in any form it might take, even if it is unintentional, creates a separation between the Jewish people and the Shekinah, since the Shekinah can rest only on one who is devoid of such filth. Our verse thus concludes with the phrase, I am Hashem, your God, to stress that this is for this reason, to maintain the special status of having Hashem as our God, rest his Shekinah upon us, that we must take care to observe the safeguards to keep us away from immorality. And as for one who is scrupulous in these matters, holy will be said about him, everyone who is inscribed for life, he will be sanctified and worthy of having the Shekinah rest upon him and will be inscribed for eternal life by virtue of his association with Hashem, the source of life. So it shall be said of them that they're holy and sanctified, which is funny because the word Kedoshim, which is holy ones, also loosely translates as saint. So in other words, if you want to be termed a saint, that's actually the true definition for a saint. Or and, pious or Hasid. Or Hasid. So thank you for that. All right. One of the last things I want to share is from the Book of Roots. So this is the uh, Art Scroll Tanakh series. And Roots, you should know, is Ruth in English. Ruth is actually read during the second day, the diaspora day of Shavuot. If you look in your Makzor, 
So this is the Magzor we use here at Magin Shenu. It's the Ashkenaz Complete Art Scroll or Art Scroll Magzor. And when we uh, look at things that are observed during Shavuot, one of them is reading the Book of Ruth. Just like during Yom Kippur, we read the Book of Jonah. During Pesach, we read uh, Shir Hashirim. So I wanted to give us a few insights because I don't feel like I've spent enough time like really um, opening up the floor for this. But I wanted to read from the preface a few things. I wanted to read starting over here with uh, the murky roots of monarchy. So the Jewish kingship, this is on the introduction to Ruth from the, uh, the art scroll Tanakh series. And it says this, that the Jewish monarchy is no mere political system. When it is ordered according to the divine will or Slika, when it is ordered according to the divine will, it is an end unto itself. It is this end which is particularly represented by the kingdom of Judah. The final one of the ten spirot, the stages through which God's will is carried out into creation is Malkut, kingship. Malkut represents the final revelation and coming to fruition of his will. So in other words, the, the reason why we have a Jewish kingship is not just to say, let's have a political system like everybody else does. It's like, no, we have a king to bring the final revelation of Hashem's will as it is brought down from heaven to earth like your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's represented by the kingship and like the chapter says or like the section of what we're reading says there are murky roots in other words the kingship comes from an impure place so we think we just read about crazy relations that we're not supposed to be engaged in. One of them is incest. Well, Ruth comes from a long line back anyway, not that the whole line did this, but the beginning of a lineage that produced Ruth came from incest. Lot and his two daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah were decimated. So, it's bringing that up, first of all. So on the next page, it says, tainted origins. It says, it is no less than astounding that the concept of the Davidic dynasty was shrouded in mists of impropriety. So in the margin, I wrote out dot, dot, dot. So Miriam, AKA, so the fact, where did Yeshua come from? Is he or is he not the progeny of what is seemingly shrouded by a lot of controversy? This is no different than Yitzhak, who was also brought forth from what was shrouded by controversy. So much so that it said that Hashem changed the features of Yitzhak's face to look exactly like Abraham, because we find that Sarah became pregnant after the episode with Abimelech. So it's like, uh, I don't think she's, she's pregnant from Abraham. I think this is a, a Maury Povich event, like who's the baby daddy type thing. And Hashem is like, no, 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 it's not like that. 
if you're going to say that about Sarah, you're basically scrutinizing the whole thing about Hashem and the holiness of the Jewish people. So there's that. So Hashem was like, in order to shut all that down, I'm going to change the facial appearance of Isaac so that he looks exactly like Abraham. That's one of the many things that happened. <laughs> so Yeshua, in fact, did carry all sin, even all the way back to Ruth and before. Whoa. All right. So that, that came from Deborah. She needs to get some help. <laughs> so if you think about it, what she's really like, not that what she's really saying, I just want to add to it that you got to connect Yeshua all the way back to Lot. So there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that you really just got to take into account. You're just like, oh, yeah, just, you know, it's just Mashiach, Melech Israel, coming from Lot. And everybody's like, no, not Lot. No, please, not him. And it's like, yep, the very one Abraham was like, are there people, is there a minion in Sodom that would merit keeping that city safe from uh, brimstone and destruction? It's like, nah, not Lot. Lot didn't even lead a minion of people into salvation. And it's like, great, I'll take the Mashiach from that guy. That's the Jewish kingship. <laughs> so next page. And what luster could it add to the holy name for his Malkut, his kingship, to trace its source to so ignoble beginning? When we talk about the king of Israel, we got to deal with the fact that there was an episode of improper marital or non-marital relations, actually. They weren't even married. So basically, the Mashiach is pretty much, if you go back to the source, an illegitimate child. Yikes. Our kingship is established off of illegitimate seed. Whoa. So King David, now you know why he struggled his whole entire life. This is in the preface of Ruth, by the way. Next page. No greater good exists than the kingdom of God on earth and its champions. The tribe of Judah with its most distinguished son, which is David. Its development began with Judah's apparently inexplicable weakness and strain from the path and literally and figuratively from the path after Tamar in Harlot's disguise. Okay, so now it's like, if you can somehow make it past Lot and his daughters, now you got to deal with Judah having relations with his former daughter-in-law who is dressed like a woman of ill repute, shall we say. Keep it kosher. So that. And then... Uh, this whole section is under what's known as a bribe for the Satan. In other words, there is the eternal struggle between good and evil revolves essentially around man. Will it be light or will it be darkness that triumphs? Man is the fulcrum upon which that reality becomes manifest. So it says it is not God who struggles with evil. That's a big statement. 
It is not God who struggles with evil. God is not in trouble. He's not on the ropes. It says the Satan exists only as long as he suits God's purpose. That evil exists in that it has the ability to becloud the senses of even the wisest of men in order to create the battleground for man's free will struggle to choose correctly. In other words, when we look at the fact of all of this controversy, all of these seemingly taints and purities and just like murkiness of where did the king of Israel come from? This is the same thing with Moshe Rabbeinu. He was born from an improper uh, relationship. So when we look at this, we have to know that this is also showing us that as this whole epic battle of evil has been done and, and is going on, that it can be won over. It's a, it's a big example of something that we can do in our own hearts, that if you feel like you're so down and out that you don't have the ability to make it, well, look at King David, look at the Mashiach, you know, and all of these different aspects that are found in the book of Ruth. Ruth was going to be like a princess in the kingdom of Moab. And she gave all of that up. And Hashem was like, okay, well, since you did that, not only will I make, not a king, she's going to be the queen. Yeah, so she's going to have a dynasty that was going to be as long as Moab stood. But she gave that up. And Hashem was like, I'm going to give you the Davidic dynasty because you sacrificed your own dynasty. And the Davidic dynasty will be forever. And so just like she was able to overcome her darkness, Hashem has shown us that we have the ability to overcome our darkness, our struggles. And that's where I want to end tonight. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us. And uh, you, what you say? I got this. Any, All right. Any shy? <laughs> got two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, well, it's on Ruth 1.9. <clears throat> Hashem should grant you peace to each of you, to your household. Ruth was imbued with sparks of holiness. While it is the custom of men to go out of the home, it is the custom of women to remain inside. Tehillim 45.14, the honor of a woman is within. Therefore, our verse teaches that Ruth shall find rest when she embraces Judaism she shall find rest after she converts because it is the custom for women to remain at home and not make themselves public. Further, it can be derived that Ruth was holy from our verse, each unto her home, because Ruth was cleaved to Naomi, the Bach. Ruth was not Arpa, received divine blessing because while Arpa broke away from Naomi, Ruth embraced her and merited Naomi's blessing. Although Naomi enjoined them both to return to their native land, Ruth knew that she should remain with Naomi. And what did you just read from? And this is the light of the Benish High on the Megillah of Ruth. Amen. May Hashem grant us the bracha of cleaving to him just the way that Ruth cleaved to Naomi. Beautiful insight. The blessing for after the study of Torah is found on page 143. 142 is the Hebrew.
Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Menakaolam, Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet, Vechaye Olam Nata Betochenu, Baruch Ata Adonai Notain Ha Torah. We want Mashiach now. Laila Tov, Shavuotov.